0: This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession, and yes, they are attorneys, one from California and one from Massachusetts, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network.
1: Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi in Massachusetts. And I'm Craig Williams from Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and also have a book out called How to Get Sued. Bob? And I write legal blog watch for law.com and my own blogs, law sites, and media law. Well, Craig, the Supreme Court wrapped up its term this week with uh, its final ruling on the individual's right to bear arms. It was quite a bang, Bob. <laughs> it really was. Yeah,
2: the pun intended, right? Well, June also included some momentous decisions, uh, including the Guantanamo detainees uh, either getting or receiving, depending on the way you look at it, their uh, habeas corpus rights, the ruling of a no-death penalty for child rapists and uh, cutting of the $2.5 billion punitive damages award in the 1989 Exxon Valdez disaster down to $500 million. There's a lawyer who earned his keep. The opening uh, conference for the next term is scheduled for this fall on September 29th. Oral arguments resume on October
1: the sixth. Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to talk about the just wrapped up term, some of the uh, rulings, uh, uh, the uh, the character of the court during this term, and uh, get uh, possibly do a little bit of crystal ball gazing. Uh, into what's coming down the pike with the presidential election.
2: Well, our first guest today is Tony Morrow, Supreme Court Correspondent for the Legal Times, American Lawyer Media, and Law.com. He joined ALM in January of 2000 after covering the Supreme Court for USA Today and Gannett News Service for the last 20 years. Tony is a legal correspondent for the First Amendment Center as well. Welcome, Tony. Good to be with you.
1: Uh, and of course, Tony was with us last year to help wrap up uh, the term, as was our next guest, uh, Amy Howe from the firm of Howe and Russell. Amy has served as counsel in over two dozen merits cases at the Supreme Court, including matters involving criminal law, the death penalty, the First Amendment, bankruptcy, and the Americans with Disabilities Act. She's also served as counsel in a number of petitions for certiorari, briefs in opposition, and amicus briefs. She currently is a lecturer in law at Stanford Law School, where she co-teaches the Supreme Court Litigation Clinic, and she has co-taught the Supreme Court Litigation class at Harvard Law School. And of course, Amy also writes for the uh, supremely popular SCOTUS blog. Welcome to the program, Amy Howe.
3: Hi, it's nice to be here.
1: I wonder if we could just start by asking uh, each of you to kind of give us your 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 overview, your, your takeaway from the term, if you will. Uh, Tony, let's start with you.
4: Well, when we uh, discussed the court a year ago, uh, I think we were talking a lot about the divisiveness of the court. Um, they had been through some bruising battles over uh, partial birth abortion, over uh, race. Um, and uh, it, it was viewed as a, a, a term where, Chief Justice Roberts' promise of greater unanimity uh, had kind of uh, fallen apart. This year, I think uh, we can say he achieved more of that, more of his goal of unanimity. The court was less divided, uh, but the uh, the cases that uh, you mentioned at the outset, uh, the, the sort of headline cases that came out in the last few weeks, uh, the court was still Divided, and I think it's just uh, those are, the, you know, gun rights and uh, uh, punitive damages and the death penalty are just issues that are just never going to—they're never going to achieve unanimity on. But I think overall the term was uh, somewhat more harmonious than uh, than last term. Amy, how about you?
3: I think that that Tony pretty much hits it square on the head. I think that uh, although, as the last week of the the court's term demonstrated that. What the court uh, lacked in quantity of the closely divided five, four decisions. it made up in quality at the end with the, the gun rights decision in Heller, the child rape decision in Kennedy versus Louisiana, and in Exxon. I think that that part of it may be sort of John Roberts at work trying to write uh, or you know have members of the majority write narrower opinions that can attract broad majorities, and part of it may just be the you know the mix of cases that was before the court this term. They didn't have an abortion case. They didn't have a, a race or religion case. Um, and some of the more contestly hot hot, hot topics like uh, the Second Amendment and child rape, I thought that the court was, was writing on a cleaner slate. I think that part of the problem with the cases like the school diversity case and the partial birth abortion case last year was that the court had relatively recently decided similar cases just a few years before that. And in the view of the dissenting justices in in those cases last term, perhaps insufficient attention was being paid to stare decisis. And I think that some of those dissenters thought that but for the replacements of Justice O'Connor and Chief Justice Rehnquist with Justice Alito and Chief Justice Roberts, the the result would would have been different. So if if you'll recall, last year we had the, the famous sentence by Justice Breyer in the school diversity case complaining that it's not often in the law that so few have, cha- have so quickly changed so much. And you didn't see those sort of uh, bitter bitter sentences in the dissents this year. You had you know, Justice Scalia in the Boumediene case complaining that, uh, that as a result of the majority's decision, you know, American lives are, are almost certainly going to be lost, but but aside from that it was a, a much more harmonious term and i think you know, there were the people who talk to the justices regularly last term and, and i should add that i'm not one of those people who talk to the justices but there was a sense coming out of the court privately that that the former liberal justices were very very frustrated and and if there is has been that sense and you certainly didn't get that sense publicly that they've they've also kept a lid on it privately
4: i'd say the only exception was um... uh on the last day when when that the second amendment case was announced and uh Justice Scalia read the his majority and then Justice Stevens uh read from his dissent and it's fairly rare for him to do that but it was quite Justice Stevens was quite uh angry in his tone and uh a, he for example he said uh, a a genuine judicial conservative with emphasis on genuine, uh, would not have inserted the court into such a political matter as uh regulation of of uh, guns uh and it was clearly directed right at Scalia uh but uh, I agree I agree with Amy that you know other than that uh really yeah, I think the liberals on the court were if not happy at least uh less unhappy than they were last term
2: is it a rare thing for the Supreme Court to read their opinions?
3: Well, all of the opinions are, are read in open court by the author of the majority opinion, and and whether the dissenting opinions are read from the bench as well is is really up to the individual justices. It's it's relatively rare, and so that last year in particular, there was there were it seemed more uh, more dissent from the bench um, than we'd seen seen in years past. And in particular, I think Justice Ginsburg, who who also very rarely does it. Did it a couple of times last term, and so people took that as as an expression of of their frustration with the
2: way things were going on the court. Is there something that you get from reading the opinion, or going to hear the opinion be read, as opposed to simply reading the words on the page?
4: Well, I I always like to do that to to listen to the to them and ask their opinion. They're they're announcing summaries, so you get the sense of what they think is the most important. Uh, uh, it's, I guess it's as close as you get to spin from the from the Supreme Court because they get to uh, announce their decisions the way they want to. Uh, so I always do get some insight, I think, uh, into into um, the you know the dynamics of the opinion from actually sitting in the court and 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 watching watching the the announcement.
3: Yeah, I think Tony's right, and there's also you. Sometimes you, you know can be even though the gallery is supposed to be quiet, it can be quite a remarkable experience. I remember being in the the bar section, the lawyer section, when the court announced its opinion in Lawrence versus Texas a couple of years ago, and there were some of the the lawyers who represented the petitioner in that case who'd been working on this issue for years, and to sit, you know, some of them even for decades, and to sit there and and you know hear Justice Kennedy talk about you know the, the Basic human dignity at stake. Uh, literally, some of the, the lawyers sitting in the bar section were, were silently crying. So it can be a very moving experience as well.
1: As opposed to talking about the, the Roberts Court, I've heard some say that this should be characterized as the Kennedy Court, given uh, that one justice's uh, uh, you know a significant role in several opinions uh, this year. Uh, what, what do you make of Justice Kennedy's uh, uh, influence on the court over the past term?
3: Not, you know, it's an interesting question whether it's his his influence. I know that certainly from from the advocates' perspective. You know, when you're in a a closely divided case, the advocates are very interested in in arguments that will appeal to him, and and you can see that as well. I think actually, you know, his influence in in perhaps how the opinions in some of the closely divided cases are drawn. I think that there were a lot of uh, questions left open after the court's decision in the the gun rights case in Heller. You know, the court decided that there was this you know, basic individual right to have a gun in your home, um, but it left open a lot of questions such as, you know, how much regulation is permissible, what standard of review is applied to to, to any regulations that exist. And, and I think there's a the, the conventional wisdom is that perhaps they left open some of these questions on purpose in an effort to keep Anthony Kennedy on board because at oral argument he'd expressed concerns uh, about regulation, but, but seemed inclined to, to hold that there was an individual right to have, a, to have a gun in your home.
2: Why a gun case now? I mean, they waited so long to pick up uh, a case that had come up the lines from the lower courts on on the Second Amendment. Why now?
4: Well, I think uh, part of it is that uh, for the first time, really, the, the gun rights uh, movement uh, well, not not the movement, but a, a, a gun rights advocate actually uh, uh, wanted the case to to be um, to get all the way to the court. I th- the the NRA and other groups have been reluctant, generally speaking, to bring cases to the Supreme Court on on the Second Amendment because they were fearful that they might lose, um, and also they were fearful that they could possibly, you know, lose their biggest issue. But this uh, this uh, solo practitioner, or not exactly a small firm practitioner, Alan Gura, who brought the case uh, on behalf of some carefully selected DC residents, uh, he seemed to be confident that uh, the time was right to bring it. Uh, Of course, as it was the posture it was brought to the court, and was DC was. Uh, DC was the plaintiff in, in uh, asking the Supreme Court to overturn the DC Circuit, but I think the uh, uh, I think the the thrust of the, of, of uh, Alan Gura's effort was to was to get it to the Supreme Court, and, I, and he guessed right. I think that uh, the time was right, and I think the justices felt uh, that they shouldn't avoid it any longer and just uh, face it face it head on.
3: And it had been—it's been 70 years since the, the most recent gun case was at the court. But given the number of questions that the court's opinion left open, and the, the number of lawsuits that have already been filed around the country now challenging other handgun regulations in places like Chicago and San Francisco, it seems likely that the guns will be back at the court soon.
1: Tony, and Amy, what are your takes on that case? I mean, I, I've heard—you uh, know. It, I mean, obviously, it, it, it's a victory, uh, in one hand for the NRA, but, uh, I've also heard some say that it's, uh, you know, it's somewhat of a setback for the NRA in terms of its, uh, language, uh, leaving the door open for, uh, regulation of, of certain types of weapons. I mean, what, what, you know, you've, you've talked to the, uh, many people about this case, I'm sure, and looked at the decision. What's your, what's your take on the scope of this decision?
4: Well, I think it, uh, I think there is some reason why the, the the gun rights people are um are a little hesitant because they don't they're not sure what exactly they've won if in fact um you know the opinion at the very end does mention a number of regulations that would that Justice Scalia said would pass constitutional muster uh but the I think we're just not going to know until the uh until lower courts uh, test that language and rule on it, and it comes back to the Supreme Court. I know Walter Dellinger, the lawyer who uh, lost the case, he argued for the D- District of Columbia, thinks that in fact Justice Scalia was not giving away very much. He thinks that um, any regulation that isn't rooted in the kind of regulation that guns that uh, limited the use of firearms in 1791 during, you know at the founding of the bill of rights uh may not be sustained so i think every time a municipality enacts a um a limitation on gun rights it's going to have to harken back to uh you know some rule in uh of in colonial days uh and that that may be that may prove difficult
3: I you know, also though, I think that gun issues will be back at the court relatively soon compared to the last time it had, that they were there. It could take a little while for these questions to sort of bubble through the lower courts and get back up to the Supreme Court, and for the Supreme Court to, you know, take a look at the different opinions and finally grant review. And and given, as I think we'll talk about, you know, possible retirements on the court, there's no telling what kind of court. Uh, you know, could be reviewing the next set of of gun regulations.
2: Amy, uh, I what do you think? What do you think the next gun question is going to be?
3: I think that almost uh, the the question that's most common in the gun suits that have, have been filed very recently in the last week or so is is a, a fairly straightforward question that the opinion never, nevertheless left open because the the case is coming out of the District of Columbia, which is whether or not these Second Amendment rights are in fact. Incorporated um, through the Fourteenth Amendment and, and apply to the states as well.
4: I think there are also going to be some challenges by uh, criminal defendants who um, whose sentences were enhanced because they were carrying a firearm. Uh, you know, if, if carrying a firearm is now a fundamental right, then uh, can they should they be sent to jail for, for that? Uh, at least that. That issue is going to be raised. I don't know if it'll be successful, but I think there will see a, a wave of that kind of litigation as well.
2: What kind of behavior do you think the this this opinion allows? I mean, are we going to see people strapping on holsters?
3: I think that's you know that's the question that that really has left open. I mean, they so firmly you know held that there was this individual right, but left open the contours, and they made clear that you know that felons restrictions about whether felons and people with mental illnesses can can have a, a gun are almost certainly permissible, but but left open, so it's so many other questions. Um, one other sort of interesting thing is you know, sort of how this plays into the presidential elections. Yeah, I think that the, uh, that, that had the, the decision gone the other way, which which it almost I mean, which it, it came so close to doing, it would have been an enormous rallying cry for for gun rights advocates um, in the presidential elections. Um, and so I think that you know John McCain is, has recently tried to, to continue to make the Supreme Court an issue in the election. He was at the National Sheriffs Association the other day, but but it did sort of rob the gun rights advocates of this you know, huge rallying cry that they might otherwise would have had.
1: Well, this case was significant, obviously, for uh, for interpreting the Second Amendment for the first time in in, uh, in many years. What, uh, Tony, what? You know, we mentioned some of the other sort of headline-grabbing decisions out of the court that, that came down this year, but from your perspective, what what were maybe the, the, the top couple of important cases that come out of this term? What are the ones that stand out for you?
4: Well, obviously, the uh, the Guantanamo detainee case, uh, uh, although that kind of flowed from um, a 2004 decision to uh, Grasul versus Bush, I think the court, by d- flatly declaring that uh... uh... these detainees who are not citizens of the united states um nevertheless have habeas rights even though they're not being held in the united states although they're being held in guantanamo which is a you know uh... kind of owned and operated by the united states i think that was a significant um, declaration uh, uh... so i think that would be the other big one and uh and then i think the um uh, the Exxon valdez case in which the court uh, as you mentioned before struck down uh, uh a two point five billion dollar punitive damage award uh uh is also very significant um it's it may be confined to the sort of quirky corner of the law that is maritime law uh which is uh, there aren't a whole lot of laws. Statutes on the books that guide the court in an area like that, but I think the language of the opinion by Justice Souter, which is very skeptical about the unpredictability of punitive damage awards, is is going to be uh, used as fodder in other contexts to to challenge uh, uh, to challenge punitive damages, which has been a you know a long campaign of the business communities to get the court to. Um, you know, rein in punitive damage awards. So those would be my other two.
1: Amy, what about you? Which Which of the opinions stand probably, out to you from the term? I
4: would add.
3: Uh, I think that Tony is spot on with the Boomidian and the Exxon versus Baker. I would add Kennedy versus Louisiana, in which uh, the Supreme Court, by a vote of five to four, and an opinion by Justice Kennedy, held that the Louisiana statute providing for capital punishment. Uh, for the rape of a child is unconstitutional. And on the one hand, it's actually a, a very narrow uh, in its application. There are only two people on death row right now in the United States for the rape of a child. Um, but the court went further than I think anyone would have expected it to. Uh, after a briefing and after oral argument, it held that Basically, for crimes against individuals, it, you know, this would not apply to crimes against the state like treason, but for crimes against individuals, if the victim doesn't die and the perpetrator didn't intend for the victim to die, capital punishment is unconstitutional. And This was the third time in six years that at least five members of the court have narrowed the application of the, the death penalty, and I don't think that there, that there are five votes on the court right now to get rid of it. Only Justice Stevens has really indicated in, a, in an opinion earlier this term, Bayes versus Rees, that, that he would abolish the death penalty altogether. But, but five justices, including Justice Kennedy, are clearly troubled by how the death penalty is being carried out and applied right now and have, have really started to chip away at its availability. And so this will be something interesting to see going forward in, in other capital cases.
2: We need to take a short break. When we return, we'll talk more about the rulings and what the Supreme Court will look like at the same time next year under a new president. We'll be right back.
0: Lawyer to Lawyer is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. Check out our lawyer-to-lawyer host blogs, J. Craig Williams' blog at mayhavepleasethecourt.com. Likewise, Robert Ambrogi's blog at legalline.com for daily legal observations, perspective, and, of course, a healthy dose of humor and wit.
4: If you have
3: a comment or question we want to hear from you, leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781-634-8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show.
0: A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com.
1: Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We'd like to welcome back our guest Tony Morrow, Supreme Court correspondent for Legal Times, American Lawyer Media, and Law dot com, and also Amy Howe from the firm of Howe and Russell and a writer for SCOTUS Blog. And uh, we've been talking about gun rights, but those are not gunshots. If you can hear the thunder in the background, that's coming over my. My office right now. Uh, I just I, I just have to uh, go uh, slightly off topic for a second and uh, ask Amy. You were just talking about the Kennedy Louisiana case and the big story uh, in in the New York Times uh, on the fact that that the court might have gotten its facts wrong in that case, uh, at least in terms of its its survey of of the law in this area. Have you seen that? What do you make of that?
3: It's an interesting, it, it, you know, it's an interesting, uh, just to sort of elaborate the, the opinion sort of refers to the, sort of the lack of, of federal law on this question. And Tony can correct me if I'm wrong. When in fact, uh, relatively recently, um, uh, new military law was enacted that would provide for the death penalty for the rape of a child. am I getting this right tony that 's right, yeah okay, and so you know so the the court got that wrong, and the question of you know there are a few questions that arise i mean the first is is you know whether or not that would actually have an effect on the court 's decision and my you know immediate reaction would be that that it would not um, you know in reaching its decision the you know one of the things that that the state and its amiki had cited was. You know, the, the recent trend toward you know, five or six states that had enacted the death penalty for the, the rape of a child, um, and whether or not this sort of should play into the court's assessment of, sort of where the standards of decency are evolving, and that the ultimate answer that the, the five justices, the majority reached, or that you know, there, there, there may have been this recent trend, but there are still 45 states um, that have not, uh, in which. Uh, you know Patrick Kennedy could not be executed for child rape so I, you know I think that it may have altered the balancing a tiny little bit but I don't think it would have would have affected the ultimate outcome um and so then the, the you know the other question is sort of whether or not that this was something that that the, the court should have discovered or you know perhaps the United States should have brought to its attention the United States did not file an amicus brief in the case on, on either side
4: yeah it is pretty amazing that no, none of the briefs uh in this case uh brought this new, new military law statute to the court's attention. Uh, I mean, the burden would fall on the state of Louisiana because it would be most advantageous to, to, to Louisiana to point it out that, you, you know, a federal jurisdiction has uh, allowed execution of child rapists, but uh, uh, somebody blew it. And uh, uh, it, it, that's, you know, that's pretty interesting in itself that uh, it was not very well briefed.
2: How's been the Amicus practice this year? Have you seen more briefs being filed, and does that at all contribute to the plurality of the opinions that we're seeing?
4: Well, I, uh, uh, I should probably let Amy answer because she she filed some, but uh, but I, it, there certainly has been an increase in um, in Amicus filings. Uh, the gun case uh, and uh, and the punitive damages case, all all of the big ones, got huge. Huge numbers of briefs, and I think there's also a, an increasing trend toward uh, filing amicus briefs at the cert stage, at the initial stage where the court is, or where the uh, the uh, appellant is asking the court to take up a case. Uh, it used to be that that you wouldn't file a brief until the actual uh, an amicus brief until the court actually granted the case. But now more and more parties are filing at the earlier stage uh, in the belief that. The justices or their clerks uh you know pay attention to those briefs and think, well, maybe this is a case that we should t- take a look at
3: I think uh, to follow up on what Tony has said, I think that's particularly true um in on the business side of the court's docket. I think that businesses and their you know their counsel are very savvy about the ways in which amicus brief can make a difference and you know have an incentive in, to try and both to organize the effort and to make sure that that uh, amicus briefs get filed. I think it's interesting that Tony has talked about sort of the uptick in amicus briefs at the search stage because the court's rules have recently—and this is very inside baseball—the court's rules have recently changed in a way that um, actually I think makes it more difficult to get amicus briefs filed. They have to be filed um, sooner than they they otherwise would have been under the the old rules. To, to put it simply. Um, but nonetheless, I think that the business cases, they recognize the importance at the third stage of amicus briefs, and, and they get them in, even though it's more difficult.
2: Well, Tony, let, let's get you um, polishing up your crystal ball here, Tony. What do you see for retirements in the next four years? And depending on whether we get a Republican or a, a Democrat in, in the president's office, what type of changes do we expect to see?
4: Well, it's uh, it's it's awfully hard to predict, but it's uh, certainly Justice Stevens, who's 88, and if, you know, healthy as can be, uh, it certainly is possible to imagine that he he won't stay on the court for the next f- f- four years. So I would guess he would be the first to go. And Justice Ginsburg is also, I believe, uh, 75. So I think that you know, and both of those justices are on the liberal side. So uh, I think the biggest change would occur if a uh, John McCain is elected president because he would replace liberals with conservatives uh whereas if Obama gets it, he would re- replace uh you know liberals with other liberals now they they may be different liberals and they may be more uh predictable liberals so they that too would make a change but I think in terms of actually flipping cases uh Flipping precedents, uh, the biggest impact will be if uh, if McCain is elected.
3: I think Tony hit the nail on the head in a way that I think sort of is lost in, in media coverage of the elections and the court generally. I think, you know, as, as Tony said, that you know a, a McCain victory could move the court significantly further to the right, whereas uh, an Obama victory would, in all likelihood, just leave it more or less. Where it is now, um, I do note. You know, it's, it's impossible to predict with any certainty, and, and to read too much into it. But I do know that um, Justices Stevens and Ginsburg have both already begun hiring clerks for the term that will start in October 2009. Um, so they certainly, you know, that that could well change depending on both, you know, their desire to leave and and you know, health. But. That at least they certainly are, are, do not have one foot out the door right now.
1: We are uh, getting near the end of our time in the program, and I wanted to give each of you an opportunity to kind of give us your your final uh, overview on 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 the term uh, and uh, your perspective on what might lie lie ahead. So, uh, Tony Morrill, let's start with you.
4: Well, just that uh, this term, really like any term, uh, underlines the importance of the court, and uh, and uh, this. This will date me, but this is now the eighth presidential election cycle in which I've written about how the Supreme Court ought to be a presidential election issue. It never quite makes it for some reason, but uh, but it, uh, as Amy was saying, you know, the the, uh, the shifts that could take place in in doctrine that affects everybody's lives could be very significant if, uh, depending on the outcome of the election, and uh, I guess that's what I would uh that's the the takeaway for me
1: and and tony should our listeners want to follow up with you what's the best way for them to do that
4: well my you can find my articles most easily on uh legal com, and then from there we have a supreme court uh page or else uh, law.com and
1: amy Howe, your final thoughts on this term
3: well, I think that you really can't sort of overstate the, the sort of the, the place of District of Columbia versus Heller in the in the pantheon. Um, and as Tony said, I think this this may be the the election in which the Supreme Court, you know, may finally uh, be a factor. I know it seems like John McCain has certainly been trying to make it a factor recently. Um, looking ahead to next term, you know, we we talked about the, the one of the possible reasons for the uh you know, increased harmony on the court being the lack of hot button cases like religion cases. But religion is coming back in a case called Pleasant Grove City versus Summum. Um, and then I think next term is also going to be the year of the Fourth Amendment. There are already a couple of Fourth Amendment cases on the court's docket. Um, and two terms ago, in a case called H- Hudson versus Michigan, in the first term that both Alito and, and Roberts were on the court, the court held that the remedy for uh, you know a, a, vio- a Fourth Amendment violation in that case was a, a civil suit rather than suppressing the evidence. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see if the court continues to chip away at, at at the exclusionary rule, or if there even is such a thing as the exclusionary rule at this time next year.
1: Well, I hope you'll each mark your calendars to. Uh Come back and answer that question for us next year, Uh, assuming we're still here recording this program. uh, That would about do it for our program today. I'd like to thank each of you for joining us and uh, remind our listeners that they can find this and all of our programs at LegalTalkNetwork.com.
2: And they're available on iTunes as well, so we'll be back next week to discuss another great legal topic. Bye, everybody.
0: Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com.
2: The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis